All right. If you've been coming around to midweek this year, I have good news and I have bad news for you. The bad news is actually good news, though, so don't worry. The good news is that we're going to behold the glory of Christ this evening. The bad news is that we're not doing anything new this evening. We're doing exactly what we did last week and exactly what we did the week before and exactly what we did the week before that, which is also to behold the glory of Christ. If we're thinking about our text for tonight, John chapter 5, I want to give you a mental image to think about. So tonight is going to be more like a cross-country flight than a cross-country road trip. Here's what I mean. On a road trip, you're going across the country. It's a little bit longer than taking a flight. You have opportunities to stop at all the sites, to get out of your car, stretch your legs, walk around, see all the different details of the places that you're traveling. On a cross-country flight, you may glance out the window and you see the Rockies for a minute, but before you know it, you're over the plains of Iowa, and then maybe you see the city of Chicago, and then you're on your way to New York City. You don't get to see all of the details, but you can glance out the window every once in a while and see some of the major features. So tonight, we're going to work through chapter 5, and along the way, I'm going to point out some key landmarks from the sky, and then we'll close by talking about the Trinity. Before we begin it, I want to go to the Lord again in prayer. Join me. Oh, Holy Father, we pray that you would help us to see wonderful things in your word this evening. God, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make the Lord Jesus Christ more precious in the eternal Trinitarian plan of salvation more glorious to us. Help us, we pray, in your Son's holy name. Amen. So as we've seen in the past few weeks, chapters 2 to 4 set up Jesus' ministry as one who came to this earth as a human from heaven, and we learn that Jesus is truly the Son of God because of his miracle in turning water into wine at the beginning of chapter 2, back when Casey taught on that. And then we saw last week with Andrew Nunn his healing of an official son at the end of chapter 4. Sandwiched between those in the middle of these healings is a teaching in chapter 3 on how one can obtain eternal life in Jesus. So in short, these chapters, chapters 2 to 4, teach us that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to earth in fulfillment of Old Testament expectations, and he's the one that gives us insight into how we can obtain eternal life in him. Chapter 5 begins a little bit of a new section that runs through the end of chapter 10. This section from chapters 5 to 10 primarily deal with Jesus as the Messiah who is equal with God. So we've seen hintings of Jesus' divinity, that is, his godness, but we're going to see even more of that in chapters 5 and following. Today in chapter 5, we're going to see three primary movements. So you'll see those marked there on your handout. First, we're going to see Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath in verses 1 to 18. And then we'll see Jesus make explicit his claim to be equal with God in verses 19 to 30. And then we'll see the fourfold testimony that affirms these claims in the last section there, verses 31 to 47. What's interesting about verses 31 to 47 is that we'll see that they also serve as a type of indictment on the Jewish leaders for their unbelief. We're going to begin here in verses 1 to 18. Look down in your Bibles with me. So in the beginning of this chapter, we happen upon a paralytic who has been an invalid for 38 years. You see that there in verse 5. 
You can imagine uh, when Jesus says to him in verse 6, do you want to be healed? That the invalid is sitting there thinking, is this a joke? Yeah, I mean, obviously I want to be healed. I've been an invalid for 38 years. Verse 7 helps us to see that this paralytic, though, was not only physically impaired, but he was also spiritually impaired. For he believed in the prevailing religious superstition that these pools to Bethesda contained healing powers. You see there in verses 2 and following that there's this pool there in Bethesda. There's this multitude of people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, who want to get into this pool, believing Jewish folklore that if you get into this pool, it'll heal you from whatever your infirmities might be. Jesus, with tender compassion, verse 8 says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus has mercy on this poor man. Over the course of this man's 13,780 days as an invalid, not a single eye pitied him. Look at verse 7. The sick man, in response to Jesus' question, says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. This man is constantly bypassed. And yet, the divine son, the eternal son of God, the word made flesh, sees him. This poor man's condition was under the all-seeing eye of Christ. If you're one sitting out there who is tempted to believe that Jesus is far off from your circumstances, look no further than John chapter 5. Jesus sees you. There is no condition, spiritual or physical, that is out of the concern of our Lord Jesus. Though you may not be healed like this invalid, you can be assured that Jesus is full of mercy towards sinners, even when the world ignores you. As we move along in this narrative, we get the sense from verse 9 that something is about to go awry. Jesus tells this invalid to get up, take up your bed, and walk, and then look at verse 9. It says that once the man was healed. Again, illustration of Jesus' divine power that he can make the lame walk. So this man takes up his bed and walk, and then John records, now that day was the Sabbath. This here is a indication that something is maybe about to be not good. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 38 years, 13,780 days, this man is healed and he gets up and he's carrying his mat and the first people he sees are these Jewish leaders that chastise him for doing what Jesus had commanded. These Jewish authorities were likely Pharisees who chastise him for working on the Sabbath, by which they mean carrying his mat. The important thing to, th to see in this section is that the Pharisees were aiming to uphold rigid adherence to the law 
and their own oral traditions. And once they discover that Jesus is the one who healed the man on the Sabbath and commanded him to pick up his mat and walk, they want to persecute him further. You can see in verse 12 that they question the man, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? We see from verse 13 that the man doesn't know who it is, but Jesus later encounters him, sees him in the temple, interacts with him again. The men the man then goes away again, verse 15, and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And then look down at verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. There's a lot within this context about Jewish Sabbath regulations and lots of other rules. But I think what's important for us to see here. <coughs> is that the Pharisaic emphasis on the Sabbath was deeply legalistic and self-righteous and thus undermined God's purposes. So God instituted the Sabbath for the purpose of giving rest to weary bodies and souls. It was a binding ordinance given at creation, and we see it later codified in the Ten Commandments there in Exodus chapter 20. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah speaks of the spiritual blessings that come from a joyful, independent observation of the Sabbath. But for the Jews, the Sabbath had become an end in itself. The keeping of the Sabbath, its rules and regulations were more important in their mind than worshiping the God who had established the Sabbath. If you remember from Matthew chapter 12, there's that phrase where Jesus says that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 12 verses 1 through 8, Jesus shows us that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that with his coming and his lordship over the Sabbath, he brings merciful rest, restoration, and spiritual completion through his saving work. The pattern of six days of work and one day of rest remains after Jesus is coming, but all of these ceremonial stipulations of the Sabbath and the Old Covenant law are no longer binding. You can read in Colossians chapter 2 that Paul is addressing this church, and one of the things they reference there is Sabbath keeping. So it seems like there's these Jews that say that you're extra righteous, or you can obtain righteousness in a certain way if you follow these certain set of rules. The writer of Hebrews makes this even more apparent in chapter 4 of his letter when he says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and that this rest is found in ceasing from self-justifying works of obedience and instead depending upon the mercy of Jesus Christ to save you. The healing of the paralytic here was a sign meant to bring belief in the future rest of that messianic age in Christ, but instead they continue to quibble about keeping the rules. So don't lose sight of what's happening here. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, and that sign of healing this man on the Sabbath, something that clearly only God can do, is meant to cause these Jews to believe in him, to believe that he truly is the Messiah that he is the one that is sent from God, that is equal with God, and that is the only one that can save them from their sins, such that by looking to him, by following his commands, by finding rest in Jesus alone, they can receive mercy. They don't need to look within themselves. They don't need to seek justification by following a set of rigid laws. Now, the only thing that could make the Pharisees more angry at Jesus than they already were for his Sabbath-breaking would be for him to imply that he is equal with God. So imagine you're a kid again. 
your mom and dad are mad at you for breaking a rule they placed on you. They told you that your curfew was 11 p.m., and now you're getting a talking to because you weren't back until midnight. Only moments later, they find out that not only were you up past your curfew, but you also received a ticket for texting while driving. They were upset before, but now they're infuriated. This is similar to what happens to the Jews in John chapter 5 when Jesus not only breaks the Sabbath, but also claims to be equal with God. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This can potentially seem like a little bit of a confusing phrase. What does Jesus mean? Why is this doesn't seem like a very straightforward response to the question of the Jews? In other words here, Jesus is saying, My father is at work on the Sabbath, because he is the one that upholds the universe. And would he not uphold the universe, everything would cease to exist. So he continues to work even on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father is doing that work. I also am doing that work. Which implies that Jesus is making himself equal with God. Were God to rest from working, the whole of nature would cease to exist. And just to confirm what we already know, the Jews understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's no denying the fact of the claims that Jesus is making. Jesus is not just saying, I'm here as a prophet. Jesus is not just saying, I'm here as a moral teacher. Jesus is saying, I am here on earth as a human, as God. I am the divine son of God who was made flesh for your salvation. As we turn to verses 19 to 47, we'll see that these verses are going to confirm the testimony of this sign that Jesus has just laid down. So if these first 18 verses use a healing narrative that function as a sign to show Jesus' divinity, that is, that Jesus is God, then the rest of the chapter is going to function to affirm that sign. Let's look first at verses 19 to 30. These verses in John 5 contain some of the most important teaching on Jesus' deity in all of John's gospel and in the whole of the Bible. We just saw that Jesus is God because he works on the Sabbath just like the Father. And in verses 19 through 30 we'll see four additional claims to deity. Now, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30, and make a note that these are good verses to go to when you want to establish that Jesus is God. Inevitably, you might run into conversations with people who don't believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus was just sent to this earth as a prophet, or that Jesus was just a man. But here in John 5, we have much explicit evidence that Jesus is God. And that the claims of the Bible are going to make this explicit. So look down at verse 21. It says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
we know that only God can give life, and here it's saying that the Son also gives life like the Father. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We know that the only one who can give pure, right, and final judgment over the life of sinners is God himself. And it here says that the Son has also been given the same judgment as the Father. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. We know that the only one that's worthy of our praise is God himself. We're not to render praise to other gods. And here it's saying that we are to render praise to Jesus, which affirms again that Jesus is God because God is the only one worthy of our praise. And then we see down in verses 28 and 29, (coughs) here we see reference that the son also raises the dead. It says that Jesus will say to those in the tomb, come out, those who have done good to come out to the resurrection of life, and then those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus himself possesses the power to raise the dead. We could spend the whole time together talking individually about any of these four, but suffice it to say that the testimony of John's gospel is clear. Jesus is God. He is equal with God because he is God. And because he is God, he is the only one able to grant eternal life. Which is why I think the central verse in this section um, is contained in the dead center. Verse 24. The dead center of this section in verses 19 through 30, or excuse me, yeah, 19 through 30, is verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, does the link between belief and eternal life remind you of anything else in John's gospel? Does the link between eternal life and belief remind you of anything else or anywhere else in John's gospel? Give it up for Honey Okunye, everybody. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now somebody else tell me, what, what is John 20, 30, and 31? You don't even have to tell me what it says. You can just tell me what it is. It's the purpose statement of John. Now does somebody else want to tell me what the purpose statement says? Amen. So it's clear that John is writing his gospel. He's compiled in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit exactly what we need in his gospel to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, we may have eternal life. And so here in verse 24, when Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John has written this gospel so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here in verse 24, Jesus is reminding us that true life will only come by believing in God. And for those who do believe, it says that they have already passed from death to life. The moment of belief, even though you're in the flesh, you pass spiritually from death to life like that. 
if only you take him at his word. It's that simple. If you take Jesus at his word and believe him, you will pass from death to life. If some random person came up to you on the street and said, hey, I have a million dollars for you. I've never met you before, never met this person before. They came up to you. They said, I have a million dollars for you. I've got to go and get it. I'm going to bring it back to you. But what I need to do, what I need you to do first is to give me your wallet. You need to give me your credit card, everything that you have in your wallet. Give it to me. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to go get the money and I'm going to bring it back. How liable are you to take this person at their word that they're going to come back? Pretty slim chance, right? Now compare that with your faithful, trusty grandmother who every year sends you a birthday card with crisp cash in it. She calls you up a week before your birthday, says, hey, I've just put your card in the mail. It should be there by your birthday. How likely are you to take your grandmother at her word? Much more likely, right? Jesus, the eternal son of God, throughout John's gospel, is doing as much as he can to make himself trustworthy, even more trustworthy than your grandmother. He is performing signs and miracles that only God can perform. Even now, in this moment, he is speaking to us through his word. Not because my words produce any effect, but insofar as I clearly communicate what the text of John 5 says, Jesus is communicating the words of his gospel to you. If you can hear the words coming out of my mouth, that means God is being patient with you. He's being patient to sanctify you. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's being patient so that his mercy can meet you and save you. He offers the gift of salvation and faith to you, which will lead to eternal life if only you believe the words that he is speaking to you now through his word. Death is inevitable. Everyone here knows that. Each of us know that we have a limited number of days on this earth. And what we've learned from this passage, even what we talked about earlier, is that Jesus is the judge who will decide that those who die get to either join God in heaven and be resurrected from the dead to be with God, or their bodies are going to be resurrected from the dead and sent to eternal punishment under God's wrath. Punishment is reserved for all who seek life or hope outside of Jesus. But for those who hear Jesus' words, for those who not just hear them but believe them, as verse 24 says, you will not come into judgment, but you will pass from death to life. Confess your sin, your need, and run to Jesus, the one whose mercy awaits you. Jesus wants to be so clear to us in this passage. In these words that he's speaking, these Jews are listening, and they're not taking Jesus at his word. If you're not a believer, don't let that be you. Believe the words that Jesus says. Take him at his words. Now in the final section from verses 31 to 47, we see that these verses function to further validate all the things that we've just been talking about. It's like John is, I mean... All these things that he's included, he's being so patient with us. He's saying, if you didn't believe it now, I'm going to validate it even further. 
If you didn't believe his words now, I'm going to validate it further by including these testimonies. He goes on and on. We see that these verses are not only going to continue to validate Jesus' claims to deity, but they're also going to indict all who refuse to believe. That is, they're going to make guilty even further all who refuse to believe, particularly those Jewish leaders. So in order to demonstrate Jesus' innocence and the world's guilt, John is going to parade before his readers a multitude of witnesses who bear witness to Jesus' true identity and thus indict all who refuse to believe in him. Look at verse 33. We see here that Jesus says that you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. So John the Baptist, if you remember back from chapter 1, was sent as a witness to the truth. God, in his kindness, sent John, John the Baptist to witness to the Messiah and to say he's here. Believe in him. Verse 36, Jesus says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So if John the Baptist wasn't enough, if you didn't believe based on John the Baptist's testimony, now I'm here the eternal Son of God, in the flesh. Believe in me. Oh, and if me being in the flesh is not enough, here, I'm going to perform these miraculous signs. I'm going to turn water into wine. I'm going to heal this official son. I'm going to cause a paralytic who hadn't walked for 38 years. By the words that come out of my mouth, he stands up and walks. Believe that I'm the one that I say that I am. Believe that I am Jesus, that I am the Messiah that God has sent. You have not been left without witness. Now, if that wasn't enough, verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. God, the Father from heaven, has borne witness about Jesus. And then just to rub it in their noses even more. Verses 39 through 40. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. <coughs> and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In all these things, verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you're wondering what will continue to happen between God's son and these historic people of God, the Jews, you'll have to keep coming back because we're going to see more of this in chapters 6 to 10 and following. And I think that John wants us to see the irony here in this chapter. If you remember back in verses 1 to 17, the Jewish leaders prided themselves on being strict adherents to the law of Moses. But in verse 39, Jesus says, huh, you think you're so smart you search the scriptures, you know the scriptures so well, and yet you don't even see that the point of the scriptures is to point to me. You spend all your time tooth and comb going over these laws, and you fail to see that the scriptures were pointing forward to me. Look at verses 45 and 46. 
do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? I mean, Jesus is not holding back any punches. He literally tells them, you have set your hope on Moses, not on the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God that has been sent into the world for your salvation. The proud is being humbled. The confident are being shaken. And ultimately, this self-justified group is going to be judged by the only one that is permitted to actually justify, Jesus himself. John is painting a clear picture here for us, particularly if we remember that purpose statement from John chapter 20. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Everything about John chapter 5 is written to cultivate belief. And for those that are in Christ, to strengthen your belief that Jesus is the one that has saved you, and that in the end time, you can be confident that he will raise you from the dead to join God with a glorified body. Now, as we finish the overview of the text, I want to close with these last few minutes by zeroing in on some questions that are raised about Trinitarian relations in chapter 5. Now, if you remember from John chapter 1, I gave us a brief introduction to the doctrine of the Trinity, and I told you that we would circle back to this again. So as to not be a liar, I want us to spend a few minutes to talk about the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity gets at the heart of God and at the heart of God is our everything, our salvation, our good, and our joy. Now, if you're tempted to tune out when it comes to deeper theological conversations, I would humbly submit to you that that is not the way of a Christian. If you're tempted to tune out when it comes to deeper theological conversations, I want to submit to you humbly that that is not the way of a Christian. The way of a Christian is to humbly, diligently, and carefully study God's word so that we can know exactly how God has revealed himself to us, including the doctrines that may seem difficult to understand. So in these next few minutes, I want you to zone in, I want you to perk up, I want you to hang with me, and if you're interested in thinking more about some of the things that we're going to talk about, I have no doubt that There'll be time to have conversations with me, with one another. At fall retreat, we can have conversations with one another. At fall retreat, you can have conversations with Nick about the nature of the Trinity. And at fall retreat, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of God. And then this Saturday, Lord willing, the ladies are gathering for the Women's Institute, right, to talk about the Trinity. Is that right? I'm pretty sure. Okay, yeah. So if you're a lady in this room and you're not planning on, oh, wait, the fall retreat's this Saturday. Never mind. We're going to talk about it at fall retreat, though. And you can listen to the audio, so never mind. Anyway, so throughout John's gospel, we've noticed that there are a number of unique and challenging questions, I think particularly here in chapter 5, related to the persons of the Trinity and how they relate to one another. 
I think perhaps the most prominent questions deal with the nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So John is going to wade into these waters. Now look down at John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus, right after making this claim that he's equal with God, says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then flip over to verse 30. Jesus says, <coughs> I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I think that the challenge that these verses present is that it seems on the surface like God the Father and God the Son have two different wills. They're seeking to accomplish two different things. It could also appear that Jesus is somehow lesser in authority or that he's subordinate to the Father because of the way that he describes his inability to do anything of his own accord. Now, if you'll remember back to our time in John chapter 1, we affirm that Jesus is not a created being, but he is eternally God. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Son has existed for eternity in the Godhead, and is equally God, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But we also saw in John 1 that the, the eternal Son of God took on flesh, as a human at a specific time in history. So here, the eternal, God, the, the eternal Son of God takes on flesh. In becoming fully human, Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes. In taking on flesh, Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes, that is, that he is God. But instead, he assumed all the attributes of humanity in his person. You can think of the incarnation as addition, not subtraction. Nothing is being subtracted from God the Son. He's simply adding to his person humanity. Now, when it comes to the Son submitting to the Father, some believe that the subordination of Jesus' will in obedience that we see in the Gospels is not merely a product of Jesus' incarnation, that is, his taking on flesh, but it is actually reflective of the eternal relationship between the Father and and the Son. In other words, the Son obeys not merely as a man, but as God. This is problematic scripturally, theologically, historically, but I want to focus on just one aspect so we don't get too lost in the weeds. Though there is one God who exists as three distinct persons with three distinct roles, there is one divine will and one divine nature in God. So we know that God is one. The whole of the scriptures affirm that there is one God. But the one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Together, they are the one God. In each of them, possesses this one divine will. What the Father wills, so also the Son wills. What the Holy Spirit wills, so the Father wills, because there is one God and one divine will. 
If the will of one person of the Trinity is subject to that of another, then they cannot have the same nature. So if we were to say that Jesus has an eternal will of submission to the Father that is different from the will of the Father, then that means that there's no longer one single eternal divine will. So either Jesus does not have the same nature as his Father and is thus a separate type of God, that's the heresy of tritheism, that there's three different gods, or his nature is different from and inferior to the Father, which makes him a lesser God. As we saw earlier, our text affirms that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is equal with God, and Jesus shares the same divine will as God the Father. Now, with that established, we get to the question of our text. If these things are true, then why does Jesus say that he can do nothing of his own? If Jesus is fully God and possesses the same divine nature and the same divine will as the Trinitarian Godhead, then why does Jesus say that he can do nothing of his own? This is where our understanding of the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh comes in. Hang with me. This is where it gets glorious. This is where it gets devotional. In becoming human, Jesus takes on a human nature and thus possesses both the divine will, the eternal unified will of God, and also a human will, a conscious decision-making as a human. According to Jesus' human will, God the Son submits to the single divine will of the Trinity in order that he can live a fully obedient life as a human. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam, as a representative of man, falls short of what God requires. So in his sin, he represents the rest of mankind. From that point on, from Adam on, each of us are sinners. The testimony of Scripture bears this out. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But thank goodness that it doesn't stop with Adam. If Jesus is going to be the perfect representative of a human on earth before God, he must possess this human will, and this human will must be perfectly obedient to God and to all that God commands. As we know from the rest of the gospel, Jesus perfectly obeys as a human. And as a result, all who believe in him by faith can have his obedience imputed that is given to them as if they themselves were perfectly obedient before God the Father. Jesus says in John 15, 8, that the Father is glorified when we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. This is only possible because true disciples of Jesus derive their obedience from Jesus himself, the true vine. This again is fundamentally why the divine nature and the human nature that I'm just talking about matters. Through Adam, the disobedient man, we are all made sinners. But through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the perfectly obedient one, we can be made righteous by faith. The human nature matters. The human nature of Christ matters because through it, we can become righteous before God. So when you read about the Son's submission to the Father in the Gospels, remember, the Son submits according to his human nature and will for the purpose of perfectly obeying the Father as a human. And Jesus' perfect obedience as God the Son incarnate means that all sinful humans who believe in him 
and profess him to be their savior can be saved and spared from the judgment to come. All of this was a part of the single eternal divine will of God where the three persons of the Trinity from eternity of past agreed to redeem fallen mankind. Don't miss the point here. What we see here in John chapter 5 in verses 19 and verses 30 in this relationship between the Son submitting to the Father, it's nothing, it's nothing of a distinction between the Father and Son in terms of their divine nature. It's clear from the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. And yet, because Jesus took on flesh, he also took upon himself a human nature. And because that human nature was perfectly obedient unto God, we now, by faith, through his death, through his resurrection, can receive the righteousness that couldn't come through Adam, that couldn't come through the law of Moses, because Jesus was the only one to represent us before God the Father. That's why doctrines like these matter. If you want to think more about that, read this book that Nick referenced earlier. It's called The Trinity by Scott Swain. He touches on that subject and many others, and it's an excellent primer on this doctrine, an excellent primer on the nature of the Trinity and how that plays itself out in salvation. It's like a, it's like hidden treasure. We're tempted when we come to the scriptures to just scoop what we can off the surface, and we see it's glorious, not knowing that if we dig even deeper, we'll find even more glorious riches that are going to encourage our faith, that are going to root us more deeply so we're not tossed to and fro, and ultimately we're going to give glory to God. When it comes to biblical teaching like this, we must confess with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Remember, God doesn't exist in this complex Trinitarian relationship to confuse us. That's not the reason. He exists as the one God in three persons so that we might praise him and so that we might cherish him. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we do confess with the Apostle Paul how amazing are the depths of the riches and wisdom of your knowledge. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. Oh God, humble us before your word. Humble us before you. And God, give us the patience and the diligence by your mercy to study the scriptures diligently that we may know you. And God, help us to cherish the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have life and the one who will one day resurrect us from the dead to be with you in eternal glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.